Well, no, I think I go back. It's trust. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's like how I got that first deal financed. I developed trust. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it's trust with your employers or, or employees. It's trust with your lenders. It's trust with your consultants, your investors. partners, yeah, your investors. investors. And, and without that, you don't have anything. And it's uh, something that's developed over years. Welcome to the CRE Project Podcast, where investors, developers, brokers, and real estate entrepreneurs join together to grow, build, and execute on experience and strategies within the commercial real estate industry. We sit down with the top pros and leaders within the commercial real estate field and gain knowledge and insight from their success. We're glad you're here and look forward to connecting with you. You can find the CRE Project on all major podcast platforms, along with YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Listeners, welcome to today's show. We are thankful that you are here today uh, because we welcome two uh, local legends in the New Mexico market on the show with us today, Kurt Browning and Ben Spencer uh, with Titan Development and also Titan Fund Management. Um, These are two incredible individuals. Um, that have decades of experience in the uh, development business. Titan uh, is a very well-known company throughout New Mexico and also the state of Texas and is uh, by far the dominant player in New Mexico when it comes to uh, multifamily and industrial uh, development. So we sit down with these two guys and we talk about, uh, obviously how they started in the business, the lessons that they've learned over the last 20 years. Um, and we also dig into, you know, what we're all going through right now in the development business, uh, when it comes to supply chain, uh, and obviously the, the volatile pricing in the, uh, construction, uh, space. So, uh, learned a lot from these guys. Um, again, thankful to have him on. Um, we started the conversation with Ben on how he found himself uh, in the commercial real estate business, um, starting as a CPA. So I, I grew up in Roswell, New Mexico. Went to college in New Mexico State. I, for some reason, I always wanted to be in the real estate business, and had I uh, known what it was really about, I might have stayed as an accountant. <laughs> but anyway, I uh, moved to Dallas. I practiced public accounting for a couple of years. I went back to graduate school at uh, Southern Methodist and then started my real estate career with the Trammel Crow Company, uh, leasing warehouses in North Dallas. Interesting. 1986. So initially a broker then. That's how you started out and kind of uh, dipped uh, your toes in the water. Yeah, absolutely. Very and cool. I think, uh, I think there's a lot of different ways to get into the business, but, uh, you know, leases are what uh, creates value in real estate. And that's a great way to start. Yeah. And what, what brought you back to New Mexico? Well, and, uh, it was really tax reform of 86. The, uh, there was a recession in the real estate industry. I always thought I wanted to be back in New Mexico. So I used that opportunity to, to move back. Very cool. Awesome. What about you, Kurt? How did you get started in commercial you know, real estate? I grew up in Colorado Springs. My dad taught at the Air Force Academy. I went to college at Texas Tech, uh, got an engineering degree, thought I would go into petroleum engineering, and that was the mid-80s, and the oil market tanked. Um, met my wife there. She's from Albuquerque. That's how we ended up in Albuquerque. Oh, cool. and I actually started at Moles and Corbin, a consulting firm here, engineering firm with uh, Dayton Molson, Al Corbin, and Del Archuleta. Six years there, and actually I was making a presentation, and Bob Murphy and Cleve Matthews from Alvarado Realty slash Sandia Properties slash the Abruzzo Development Group uh, saw me and kind of recruited me. Said, you got to jump into development and real estate. At the time, I thought I would hang my own shingle and have my own company, engineering company. Um, so I went up and worked with Bob Murphy, Louis Abruzzo, and crew for about 10 years. And uh, that was probably 20, 25 years ago. Very cool. Awesome. 
been uh, enjoying it ever since, I guess, huh? Yeah. <laughs> he stuck they kinda, with it. They kind of wound Most things days. down. Yeah, yeah they kind of wound <laughs> things down. And I kept seeing Ben at Economic Forum. And he said, hey, you really come, like I said, you come over and join Titan. Yeah. And it's been a great, great move and a great decision. Awesome. So, Ben, tell us about your first deal. Is it a war story or did it go pretty smooth? You know, no, no, it was, uh, I don't know if we have enough time to go <laughs> into all the details, but really my first development opportunity came about in 1990 and it was, it was a, a subdivision development deal and an opportunity. I, I bought a, uh, a note from the RTC, foreclosed out the owner, uh, developed it was a small 40 lot subdivision in the Northeast Heights. Uh, at that time, uh, you know, the, the builder was Civic Thomas Homes, which is now Pulte. It, uh, it was right when the market uh, turned up for single family building. And I sold all the lots before construction was complete. And wow. that set me on a path of doing uh, subdivision development for about five years. That's pretty much exclusively what I did because of, there was a, there was a big void in the market at that time, and uh, just happened to stumble across an opportunity to set me on that path. So certainly, you know, subdivision development hadn't hadn't intended to get into that business, but over the course of my career, I probably developed five thousand lots in Albuquerque. But uh, commercial development is what I really wanted to do. And that mm -hmm. provided an opportunity for me to create some capital to, to go on to build office buildings and shopping centers. So was it kind of a little scary going from, a, you know, being an industrial broker and kind of having a, you know, historical knowledge in that to all of a sudden doing lot development or what was, what was that like? You know, it was all, I mean, I, I think my, my, Training and, and accounting and finance it was just underwriting the deal, you know, looking at the opportunity. I mean, certainly, I had, when the opportunity was presented, I I had never thought about doing subdivision development before that. Yeah, and and so it was a matter of just looking at the opportunity, trying to assess the risks, and putting the putting the deal together. But uh, you know, it, it you know. I, you know, growing up, you know, my father was around the real estate industry, he was not a, a developer, but, uh, you know, he was my mentor and in, 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 in teaching me how to look at real estate opportunities. So I've been fortunate in that regard. Very cool. And did you have a partner on that first project that kind of <laughs> held your hand a little bit or did you just dive right in? Uh, no, I just dove right in. Really? Certainly, wow. Uh, you know, I was able to acquire the land at about half of its value uh, through the acquiring the note. And, you know, it, it took some uh, ingenuity getting the deal financed, but because uh, I didn't have two nickels to rub together at that time. And I, and, uh, I was fortunate to be able to get the financing. And, it, 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 you know, I look back and and, and what I know today, I mean, I probably was very fortunate nothing went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I, I didn't know what uh, yeah. uh, what dangers worked. It's like playing golf and you play the golf, uh, golf course for the first time. And yeah. you don't realize how much trouble there is on that uh, dog leg par five until you've played it four or five times. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes that's what you see in successful real estate developers, though. You know, it's almost ready, fire, aim sometimes. And then, uh, you got to take action at some point. Otherwise you just overthink it and you just, yeah. you never, you never make your move. So some, yeah. maybe that was a blessing in disguise. Well, and I'd like to tap on, cause you, you know, you, you, you touched on a really interesting point, Ben, that a lot of people are at, um, you know, and, that, and find themselves in, especially when they're younger in the business, but that's, you know, obviously getting your first project finance. So I'd, I'd like to kind of hear the background on that. You said it sounded, <laughs> it was, it was a little adventure there. How did you get your first project financed and structured and share that with us? Well, so a little more detail. So, you know, in the, in the late eighties, the savings and loan, you know, crisis happened 
you know, the RTC ended up with, uh, you know, all the SNL assets. And you know, actually it was a, a broker brought me this opportunity that he had this home builder, which turned out to be Civic Thomas that wanted, but they, they were broke at that time as well. And they, but they wanted somebody to buy a piece of land and develop the subdivision and looking into it at, you know, at that time, the, the developer that owed the money to the RTC was Bellamy Community Development, who was the largest subdivision developer in Albuquerque in the 80s. It, they were owned by the Public Service Company of New Mexico. They were in bankruptcy. Uh, the New Mexico Federal was the lender that had been taken over by the RTC. And one thing that, uh, you know, I'd spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out how to buy assets from the RTC. And at that time, land loans were toxic. I mean, they were the worst of the worst. Yeah. And so Bellama, their, their bankruptcy trustee would not sell the land for less than they owed on it, which was $700,000. But I knew that... I could get a buy the the note at a substantial discount, which I was ultimately successful in doing. I bought the note for three hundred fifty thousand dollars. There was a full set of construction plans, so we got pricing on the on the subdivision. So, so I went to see the my banker and told him I had three hundred fifty thousand of equity in this deal, which was the discount on the note, and he agreed to loan me the money. And, uh, and again, we developed the subdivision it was just as the market uh, ticked up. I mean, Civic Thomas bought every lot in the subdivision before construction was complete. And I'd made more money on that one deal than I had in my entire career before that. Wow. Yeah, and that, it is obviously reward. there was a, a void in the market and an opportunity to develop lots. And so I, I set out to, to fill that need. Yeah. So what did you, what do you think you did to make that lender comfortable, get, you know, taking that leap of faith with you? Well, certainly I, I, you know, there's, there's other factors. You know, I, I, I didn't have $350,000 to buy the note either. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, I put a partnership together and convinced others to, to put equity in the deal, gave them a big piece of the profits. And, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm fortunate that, uh, you know, I had, I guess I, I uh, gave a good sales pitch. To yeah. The bank. Yeah. I think that's what it really probably comes down to. So <laughs> investing in the person uh, along with the project. So definitely a, a compliment to you uh, in that regard. But that's definitely. Uh, an interesting uh, first deal. Like I, you know, tell you know a lot of young people that are getting into the industry. I mean, you never know where the opportunity is going to come from, mm-hmm. and you know you've got to get out there. You know, network. You know, go to ULI, go to NAOP. You know, and and keep your eyes wide open for opportunity because you never know where that opportunity is going to come from. Yeah. Yep. Good tidbit for sure. So how, so how many years passed until you decided to launch Titan? Tell us about that. Well, so at that time, I, that company was called, was called Argus development company. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was primarily a single family lot developer, but then started doing uh, shopping center development. And then in the mid nineties and a, a, my really one of the larger shopping centers I did back then was Laqueva Town Center at Paseo, Wyoming, and I had met uh, Kevin Reed, who's a, a general contractor. Uh, he ended up building that shopping center for me. We became friends. We've got uh, a lot of mutual interest, primarily hunting and fishing, and <laughs> we became good friends. He then he started uh, bringing some other you know build a suit opportunities to me and. You know, it, you know, certainly we were partners in deals long before Titan was formed, but mm-hmm. uh, 
over over the years, we decided that uh, it would make sense to formalize the relationship. So in 1999, we started Titan Development Company, and you know certainly in the last 20 years, you know I, I would have never imagined we would be doing what we're doing today when we started out you know, 23 years ago. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a ma- an amazing company that you've built. And it's, you know, again, I, I, I guess it's always humbling to see kind of, you know, the struggles that you've kind of gone through, I'm sure, to build it over the years. What's been kind of the biggest challenge growing a development company over the last 20 years? Oh, I mean, I, I think just surviving some of the, the cycles. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, 2007, eight were uh, very difficult periods. But, you know, you know, certainly, you know, today Titan is... We've got 30 something employees. I mean, you know, it's always interesting as you build a company as, as, you know, people come and go and certainly, you know, that changes the dynamics and uh, we're fortunate. We're in a great place today. I think uh, we're hitting on all cylinders. And uh, I don't certainly think that uh, even, even after all the success we've had, our brightest days are ahead of us. Uh, that's that's obviously great to hear and i think that's something that a lot of people obviously struggle with over their career is kind of combating these instantaneous or sometimes random waves of uh you know difficult times that you can kind of go through throughout the career so again to have a a life of 20 years thus far with brighter light in front of you that's definitely a, a compliment to to you and you know just as the leader and founder of the company so oh no i mean i i would say it's a, a testament to our you know our partnership with kurt and kevin but our development directors i mean everybody everybody's important everybody contributes and you, you can't do it without the entire team yeah takes that culture like, like you said like going back to the baseball analogy i mean you, you've got to have every position filled or it doesn't work it doesn't work amen to that so what do you feel like titan wise um you know what do you guys do differently from a lot of the other developers out there you know whether it be multifamily or you know uh, warehouse industrial space what do you guys feel gives you a competitive advantage that you're particularly good at I think our strength, one of our strengths is, you know, one alignment. Ben touched on the teamwork aspect and, you know, we're not big, um, but 30, 40 people, but we're all rowing in the same direction. And that, that alignment and uh, quality people is so important. You're only as good as the, the people on your team. Uh, that being said, we're a little different than other investment companies or development companies. You know, you got a lot of groups out there that will, uh, strictly raise money for investment. We're truly developers. We go A to Z. You know, I cut my teeth on Ventana Ranch, 1,300 acres that uh, did not have access. So you talk about taking a risk, um, buying 1,300 acres without any road access. But you learn real quickly to go from A to Z. And that means every part of the development process. And you have some investment companies that are really good from P to Z. Um, or A to L. Um, so that's, that's where we're a little different is, although we're an investment company, we've got development teams that know the insides and outs through the whole entire process. And that ranges from industrial to multifamily to master plan communities. And I really think that's our strength. We've got attorneys, we've got engineers, planners, uh, accountants, architects. For a small company, we check all the boxes and are are fluent in that ground up development from A to Z. Yeah. So, so. Verti- vertically integrated. Yeah, definitely uh, a, a benefit and a plus for sure. And it, I guess, you know, again, you guys have kind of both touched on it, but it comes down to not only having all those positions, but having the right people with the right talent and having that culture in there that, that makes everybody want to obviously perform. So, you know, what do you guys feel like the most influential factor is for being a successful developer in today's world, Kurt? Let me ask you that. Most influential factor. I've got three. Honesty, <laughs> honesty, integrity, and then tenacity. You just have to be tenacious, especially if you're a developer in New Mexico. Yeah. As you guys know, we do a lot of work in other states. And I'll just say it, it's easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it generally is easier. 
Um, there, there, there's a reason there aren't a lot of regional or master or national developers in Albuquerque. It's, yeah. uh, it's just harder to do work here. So tenacity is really important. Stay the yeah. course. That doesn't mean you don't know when to abort um, a deal, but that tenacity, but that backed up by, you know, uh, honesty and integrity. What, what do you think, Ben? Well, no, I think I go back. It's trust. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's like how I got that first deal financed. I developed trust. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it's trust with your employers or, or employees. It's trust with your lenders. It's trust with your consultants, your investors. partners, yeah, investors. Your investors. And, and without that, you don't have anything. And it's uh, something that's developed over years. Yeah, it takes, takes a while to build that, no doubt. And then you build a reputation, Clayton, which is really important. We, we now have that after a couple decades where, you know, even some of the challenging neighborhood associations, I think we have a little more respect. They know we're going to work with them diligently and make changes. So you have a reputation of, you know, we do what we say and we get things done. So. Yep. It's a good reputation to have, no doubt. So let's pivot a little bit. Why don't you guys tell us about the, what do you have in the hopper right now? What's kind of on your, the top of the list as far as projects going on? And and maybe before that, maybe touch on, you know, what have you guys accomplished and built in the last, why don't you give the audience a little bit of background on just what, how many developments you've constructed over the last, you know, say five, 10 years here and kind of what you're, you know, focused on and building today as we speak. Well, I mean, I think if you say five or 10 years, that's a big, that's a yeah. different number, but yeah. <laughs> let's say five years we've done, you know, well over a billion dollars in development. Um, wow. And just to jump into multifamily, I, I'm guessing I have to look at it probably 3,500 to 4,000 units under our belt, a um, thousand under construction and a thousand in the in a development or design pipeline type, type, type frame industrial, you know, Ben and Kevin were doing some industrial back in the early 2000s, late 90s. So um, if you add all that in there, several million square feet of industrial. But obviously, the last five years have been very robust in both the industrial and the multifamily markets, especially in Central Texas. I think everyone knows we have an office in Austin and our industrial parks there continue to to uh, grow quickly. Awesome. So what what projects are you working on right now? that is again taking kind of your most attention that that's kind of the most interesting <laughs> oh we have a lot going on <laughs> most of most of this is an albuquerque audience so we've got the multi-family work in journal center across from cabela's uh journal center lofts uh, the project at academy and tramway which is a multi-family 280 units Velasa high desert uh for those of in the heights paseo and uh ventura behind uh, Trader Joe's is another multifamily deal. And then a, a few more coming down the pike. Uh, we have deals in San Diego, multifamily. Denver, multifamily, four-story, or sorry, five-story wrap parking garage product. Colorado Springs, uh, got a deal in Southwest Fort Worth. And all of the industrial is Central Texas with multiple buildings under construction there. And obviously the one at West Point 40 that you alluded to prior to this call. Is your exit strategy, do you sell the majority of these assets? Do you guys hold to any of them or, or you build them and sell them and return capital to your investors? We do. And I think we'll get into our equity fund platform that that Ben can get into more detail later on this podcast. But um, the way it's set up right now, we're in our third fund. All three funds are disposition funds, meaning uh, we build ground up and then have a disposition within a certain time frame, five, anywhere from three to seven years. Um, so yeah, it's a disposition uh, strategy right now. That mm-hmm. being said, uh, we'll be rolling out uh, an income fund here by the end of the year that, again, Ben could probably touch on some details there to maybe hold on to some of those assets, you know, buy them at market value for the income fund. So how, how many projects do you have under construction right now, Kurt? <laughs> good question, Clayton. <laughs> That's a really good question. Golly, uh, 12, 13? 
Ben, I... <laughs> um, he's, uh, he's six multifamily and uh, yeah, eleven. Uh, probably five five industrial buildings. I think are under construction yeah, today. Yeah, that's, eleven soon soon to be twelve. That's some funny. of these some of these have lagged a little bit with the supply chain and some of the challenges. So we should be we should be at thirteen. Yeah. Well, and and that that's actually exactly why I was asking because with that amount of projects going on, talk to us a little bit about how you guys have been handling, you know, everything that's been going on, whether it's you know the cost of, you know, lumber, steel, glass, you know, the labor. I mean, how are you guys handling all of that? With the most challenging time frame that I've ever been a part of, I think anybody's been a part of. You know, in the heat of Intana Ranch, if you think back to 2003, 2004, you know, that, that community now is 3,300 lots, I think. And to put it in perspective, we were doing, oh, I don't know, eight or 9,000 permits a year in Albuquerque. And I let that sink in because for the last six to 10 years, we've averaged 1,800. Yeah, no kidding. So it was... Different the last time. 14 years. Yeah, it was hot. This time around it's it's so busy so many subcontractors left the market back in 09 08 time frame um then you add in the supply chain challenges it's been very challenging and that there's really no wire around except for we are in deep with our general contractors deeper than i've ever been a part of um, the contracts are different than i've ever seen in my career um on performance on both sides and you're, you were always a team with your general contractor, but it's even more so now. Well, we're in the weeds and the details of every part of every project. At what point does it make sense for Titan to start its own construction division? Is that something <laughs> you guys consider? You know, given what's happened for the last two or three years, I would probably retire tomorrow if Ben and Kevin came in and said we wanted to start a construction company. <laughs> That's a tough, well, yeah. tough area. Well, I mean, but we certainly somewhat did in the early years. I mean, when yeah. Kevin Reed, but we had, he and I were partners in Titan development. He still had his construction company. Reed and Associates. And Reed and Associates. And, you know, certainly it, it is, uh, it, it adds some complications and, and can be, can attribute to some conflicts of interest. So we would, we would, we've been there and uh, we, we think not being, in that side of the, the, the equation makes sense for us today. It yeah. went very well with Reed and Associates. We did several office buildings here and mm. it was a great team. Um, so that's no reflection on construction or even RNA. It's just nowadays that is, it's, it's, it's hard to be a general contractor and build $80 million multifamily projects. Yeah. No know. doubt. Yeah. And staffing and, you know, getting people show up. I mean, it's just unbelievable right yeah, now. They, they can't find people just like the rest of us. Yeah, exactly. So. And it's all, all kind of in it together. How, so you, you mentioned, and I think it'd be valuable. I mean, you said that contracts are being structured differently right now, Kurt, you know, for a lot of developers out there that are listening, that could be kind of right in that position where they're negotiating with with the GC, I mean, give us a little insight on that. What, you know, what, what have you guys structured differently with the GC in times like this? Yeah, it's a different animal. And Chris Pacheco, our CEO, general counsel, um, he's the rudder of our ship and his whole legal team, you know, spend probably two to three times more on a, a typical contract for some of these bigger multifamily deals. And you get into shared savings, uh, the GC won't want to commit when lumber was pretty crazy. They didn't want to commit on anything. So you, you set a baseline number and then it's kind of an inverted uh, shared savings. If it goes one way, you split the savings. If it goes up, which typically it was going up at that time, they didn't want to take all the risk. So mm -hmm. they wanted to put some of the risk on the owner. Well, is it, what's that split look like? That's just one example of just the lumber um, liquidated damages are very typical five years ago. If you don't get done by the certain time, it goes up, you know, this 30 days, then another 30 days and there turns into big numbers. We have a couple of GCs in Colorado that they won't even talk to us if you're going to put liquidated damages on it, which makes it really tough to put a completion date on a project. Yeah. So all kind these things turn into deep, deep negotiations and you're really all in the same boat 
there used to be a little separation between the owner and the GC. We're all in it together. Um, I mean, daily calls on a certain buyout of insulation or whatever it might be. And how can we address this? A great example is an industrial building we had in Texas. And our team had the whole thing built. We've got a great uh, design build contractor down there. And I forget what size building it was, maybe 150,000 square feet in Hutto. It's complete. We are ready to go. And our fire pump is stuck on a ship outside Long Beach. Yeah. Well, no, worse than that, it, it's under contract. We're going to close on it at certificate huh. of occupancy. We, we can't, can't get, get a CO because our fire pump is, you know, on a ship on floating out there. Long Beach. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. you need to get into port. <laughs> so that, that's one example of those details you probably wouldn't be part of five years ago. We're in the thick of it because those GCs now communicate daily to explain whatever the challenges might be. Yeah. So how no surprises. Are you guys structuring? I don't know if you guys are doing any traditional financing, but are you structuring the financing, the debt any differently? Because of the delayed timelines, I mean, talk to us about that. I mean, I don't think it's uh, affected the way we're financing projects. Okay. I mean, certainly, we are, are more cautious. I mean, in today's environment, certainly, we're underwriting deals with um, more contingency for interest costs, as well as you know, certainly time delay. So we're. Mm-hmm. We're incorporating that uh, that variable into our underwriting. Got it. Is there, this is probably a somewhat funny question, but is there any point within the last two years that you guys really question rather, you know, to just pause versus, you know, trudging forward with some of these projects? I mean, that's one thing I've kind of admired about you guys. In fact, I was on a, a call yesterday where Titan came up and, uh, you just said that, you know, you guys were the, the one of the few companies that continue to just trudge forward uh, through these times. I mean, was there any point where when lumber was skyrocketing and, you know, everything, I mean, it's still crazy out there, but has there ever been a point where you're like, yeah, I think we'll just sideline for a little bit and see how things kind of stabilize? Well, one, I would say we're, we do that every day. Yeah. And uh, we've Good got point. projects in the pipeline now where it's like, okay, do we, you know, do, do we pull the trigger? Do we hold off? I mean, you know, you go back and look at West Point 40. I mean, we held off a long time building our first building because, one, I didn't have as the confidence in in the Albuquerque marketplace. You, yeah, yeah, occupancies or, or vacancies are going down to zero, but you look at lease rates and they don't justify new construction. Mm-hmm. It took, you know, a couple of years for us to get comfortable to pull that trigger. And, you know, it looks like, you know, I'm, we may have been a little late to get in, but uh, I mean, I think we're in a good spot today. But going back, I mean, I think that's a daily discussion internally about projects and cost. And, and we're, you know, we will never you know, pull the trigger unless we're, comfortable that it makes sense yeah and what's yeah, the, the oh, go ahead the timing of that trigger clayton is is always interesting because in the heat of that lumber challenges when it went to sixteen hundred dollars you know per thousand board feet some of our contracts or our projects were already just starting to come out mm-hmm. of the ground mm-hmm. and they were sometimes cost plus contracts meaning it's cost plus the the gc's you know overhead and fee so the train's left the station. Yeah, <laughs> it has left the station, and depending on how that particular contract was written, you're you're stuck. So, do you buy out the lumber now? Do you wait for it to come down? And we we were watching lumber by the hour. We felt like we were, you know, watching the market. It uh, so if once you start a construction, the train's left the station. Prior to that, Ben's right. You can hit pause, um, even though you might have spent you know, well over a million dollars on a multifamily deal before you put a shovel on the ground, um, you're able to hit the pause button. And we do that daily. In fact, there was email traffic this morning about a particular deal on whether we move forward. I will say that I think location, 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 and market, submarket are key. Um, And if you're in highly growth, high growth areas like our industrial deals in central Texas with so much growth happening there with the, the Samsung's, 
the Teslas, you guys probably saw the chips bill that just went through, you know, there's going to be, what we see Ben, $200 billion in investment in the next few years in central Texas. And the market is just really hot because of the amount of growth there. Mm-hmm. But I feel the same way about, you know, Peoria, Illinois or somewhere else, probably not. So yeah. it, it, that those submarkets are really key for those growth areas and locations. So, yeah, you, you might've just answered the next question I was going to ask, but I was, what is the most imp- important metric that you guys look at? I mean, I know there's a, a lot of different factors that go into making that decision, but is it, you know, the, yeah, cause you mentioned it Ben, and then you just mentioned it again, Kurt, is it the overall global market and how it's performing as to whether you guys move forward on a, on a project? Well, I mean, I, I would say it's risk adjusted returns, whether mm-hmm. what, it doesn't matter which asset class, whether it be industrial, multifamily, self storage, so it's like, do you, do you, I mean, one of our, our jobs as a developer or to protect our investors is to mitigate risk. And, and that goes into, you know, the design of it, the location of it, you know, the bidding the project out, you know, reducing as much risk as possible on, on a deal. You, you never have it completely risk-free, but, you know, like you said, location goes into that. You know, we're, we just bought another 188 acres next door to Samsung's plant. Well, you know, I think that's a pretty good location. Yeah. Light materials has, is going to spend, I don't know, three or $4 billion on a facility next door to us. I think over the next, you know, five years, I think that's a, a pretty low risk place to develop industrial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And certainly you've got you know, construction cost increases and logistical problems, but you know, you, you, you show up every day and, fight those battles. But uh, in the long run, I mean, certainly you, know, you talk about construction cost increases on multifamily and lumber and supply issues. We've been fortunate in the last few years that rental rates have gone up to uh, allow those projects to absorb that increased cost. I, my big question in the future is, you know, how, how long can that continue? We don't know. Um, I think that is why you're seeing a lot of multifamily around the country get put on pause because is, you know, that's the leap of faith is our, our rents in the future going to, you know, allow you to earn, you know, the expected return on those increased costs. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, that's the big question we, I mean, we debate every day here. How, how often, I want to touch on something you said, Ben, how, how often are just through the past two years when times have really been turbulent and obviously they're still turbulent today, how do you communicate, uh, and calm your investors? You know, I, I think we, we do a, you know, certainly I think this is, could be a segue into our private equity funds, but, uh, I mean, we have monthly communication with them on, with all of our investors, uh, you know, on, on project updates, leasing updates. And, you know, certainly I get lots of phone calls as well. And I'm, 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 I'm really, I wish our investors would, would reach out more often, but I think it goes back to trust. Hey, Amen. I was just going to say they that. trust yeah. us. I mean, we, we've had, uh, you know, a great track record of performance and, and they trust us to get the job done. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting position, I'm sure, uh, making decisions for hundreds of people that have put a lot of faith in in you. I'm sure the weight of that is just incredible. So uh, you have to do a lot of that, you know, that as as you know that uh, assessment of risk, no doubt. Well, I mean, I think one thing that gives uh, our investors comfort is that you know. And I think it goes back to why I've been successful in raising money over the years. Is I, I'm, I'm shoulder to shoulder with them as well. I mean, yeah. I would not ask somebody to invest in a project that I don't have my own money in. Yeah, And, and that gives our investors comfort that uh, I'm looking after the project. Yeah. Important to have that alignment of interests. 
Yeah. I think one difference that I've seen since arriving probably 09 is we're not that big. There are a lot of investment companies out there and you can, you can invest, you can call and probably get stuck in a phone tree mm-hmm. for the most part. You know, you said 100 investors, Clayton, it's probably about 75 max. Okay. And we all, for the most part, know all of them. And mm-hmm. if Ben is hunting in Madagascar and Kevin's in Spain and I'm out somewhere, they, they know they can call Josh, Brian, Adam, Joe, and Austin. It's, you know, we have prior to COVID, we try to get everybody together once a year. So it's, I don't want to say it's all familial, but it's, it's uh, pretty comfortable where they can check in and go, Hey, I've got a question regarding, you know, the yeah. senior deal on Corpus Christi. Yeah. And, uh, and they can go through the, the company and we're open. Yeah. And, uh, and as far as the fund structure, Kurt, is that a regulation D that you guys are doing? It is. Yes. Yeah. And is that a 506B bin or 506C? I would defer to Chris Pacheco. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm just curious if you guys could, if you wanted to, if you could take that out and advertise it, you know, say on, I saw a big spread, you guys, I think it was in the Arizona uh, uh, Big AZ Media, something like that. I just didn't know if you guys could advertise your fund publicly or if it was more friends and family and known acquaintances. We can put it, that's a great question. It comes up a lot. You may have seen the big spread we had in the business journals in Albuquerque, Phoenix, Denver, Dallas. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, and it mentions it, but you can't have, because however we're structured, we can't have a link right there that you can go in and. It it was a, it was not a solicitation. Gotcha. That's just the, uh, just the uh, announcement that the fund had closed. Gotcha. So you can't say, you know, 15% IRR with a five-year hold. Right. Right. That's in the pitch deck as part of the, uh, the pitch. And it's, that was fund three that we just closed. So this is our, our third fund. Gotcha. Gotcha. Have you guys ever explored the crowdfunding platforms or there's really never been a need? You know, there's, there's, we have not, uh, certainly. We looked at it a little bit with Adam. But, uh, you know, we're, we've been fortunate that uh, we've got a pretty stable group of investors that uh, continue to invest with us. So we haven't needed to look at alternatives. Yeah. What uh, what made you launch a fund in the first place? Was it just people wanting to just continually asking to invest with you guys or what? Uh, great question, but uh, it really was a function of our deal pipeline. As we you know, pursued more and more opportunities, I mean, you know, before the fund structure, we were, you know, putting projects together on a deal by deal basis. So we'd come up with a, a apartment development, we'd go out and raise the equity for it, get the debt for it. And, you know, it just got to be overwhelming. And so the, the fund structure allowed us to raise, you know, you know, our first fund was 122 million. Basically gave us the capital to, to fund projects for two years and fund two, same way. I think the two-year window is a great way for us to do it because, you know, again, when you're deploying, call it fifty million a year, that's you know, you know, hundred fifty to two hundred million in development. That's about what we can comfortably do a year with the existing staff size. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then also it, it really created, it, it opened my eyes, it created a, I think, a better way for our typical investor to, a safer way to invest, right? Yeah. Whereas, on you know, you invest in a single multifamily deal or a single industrial deal, you know, not every deal goes as expected, you know, you some do much better, some are laggards, but the fund structure allows you to participate in, you know, 15 deals, mm-hmm. and, you know, on those 15 deals. Yeah. We're going to have a couple that underperform. Hopefully we have 
four or five that overperform. And so it's like buying a, a single stock versus a mutual fund. You, well, you get, uh, so if you're a local investor, I mean, you get to participate in both different product types as well as different geographical areas. I mean, so in fund three, we got projects in Denver and Albuquerque and Colorado Springs and Fort Worth and Austin, San Antonio and San Diego. And so you've got a, your, your investment spread out over multiple geographies as well as uh, market segments, which is, I think a a much better way to invest for that high net worth individual. Saying that, saying that, you know, when, when we invest, when we put our first fund together, we thought maybe we'd go out and raise institutional investment. And we quickly learned that, you know, you go to uh, CalPERS and, they say, yeah, but you guys are really good guys. You, uh, we like your platform, except that, you know, we're going to make our own asset allocation. We're going to put $50 million in them with a pure play multifamily fund or pure play industrial fund. It, it, it works for that high net worth investor. It's not really conducive to the institutional funds. I've got a little story there, uh, Clayton and Gannon. We were rolling out fund one, and for years – we did the one-offs as Ben described, a uh, very prominent family, local family that I won't mention names. And they had invest, invested with us for some time in the one-off deals. And they weren't interested in the fund. They wanted to be able to pick and choose mm-hmm. the one-off deals that we presented once a quarter and say yes or no, and go kick the tires because most of those projects were local. Um, and it took some time and some convincing through their kind of little board of directors of the diversification across asset classes and the diversification across geography is actually a much better thing than just picking these one-offs that, you know, every once in a while, not very often, you know, one of these does not go as well as we expect. Um, So the diversification was the big selling point. And now they're, you know, one of our main investors and have been in all three funds. And and Kurt, Ben, I've got a question just for the listeners that may not, um, know the answer, but do your investors get to participate in the tax benefits through the fund? Are those passed through? Well, I mean, so our, our funds are, are merchant built funds. Uh-huh. So I mean, it's, it's like, so we don't accelerate depreciation on, let's say you finish a multifamily project. I mean, we're going to sell it as quickly as we get yeah. stabilized. So it's really, it, you're, you're participating in the development profits, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the tax sheltered aspect of, of real estate ownership really doesn't apply to these funds. As we move into the income fund where we're holding assets for a, a, a 10 years, it, they would, you know, it's a partnership, so it, all those tax attributes flow through to the individual investor. And, and as you're on the, the topic of your new income fund, do you guys have an idea of what types of assets you're wanting to acquire uh, as it relates to kind of the, the risk scale? Are you looking for core, core plus, or you still want to do value-add stuff? No, I mean, probably not value-add. So it will be a pure play multifamily income fund and Mm -hmm. and certainly you know that fund will acquire assets not only potentially from our development funds but you know others other developers so you're buying into existing income with uh, some upside potentially and 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 we anticipate it to also you know invest in development deals to also increase the yield you know, by participating in the development cycle. So I'm curious on your, and this is kind of a uh, segue, if you will, into my next question as well. But, you know, when, you, when you're a merchant development company, um, how are you guys, how do you guys underwrite your exit in times like this with interest rates? going up what's your and i guess my my next question to that is you know what 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 are you guys kind of foreseeing in the next year to three years with the fed and 
cost of debt, cap we, rates. You we revise the pro formas <laughs> twice a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not making that up. Yeah. <laughs> we watch well, it closely no. from rates, rents, all of all of the above. And sometimes it goes out a little further than we anticipate. But with the rent growth we've seen in multifamily, uh, the deals still make sense. And from a bigger national perspective, you know, we're the, the U.S. is still 5 million dwelling units behind, mm-hmm. whether it's single family or multifamily. So, I, I mean, I think there'll be a lull in multifamily. And Ben mentioned some of these projects might get parked to the curb for a while. And I don't know if any of ours will, but there'll be a lull. But we're still short millions of units. And those people have to live somewhere. We're starting to look at a a kind of a B-type multifamily product, call it B-plus. Um, I don't want to call it workforce housing, but kind of a step down from our luxury-type living. But we're still bullish on multifamily because, like I said, we're just so far behind in number of units in just about every city in the United States. What about the build-to-rent uh, strategy, Kurt? Have you guys, I mean, that's gaining popularity in a lot of the major metros. And it seems, I, I, I read an article last week that said 10% of the new home starts nationally are now build to rent. Yeah, we've actually, you know, put our toes in the water there and uh, took a run on a couple pieces of land and deals, both here in and Texas, and continue to keep an eye on that. Uh, bullish on that market for sure. I know Phoenix is kind of the epicenter for build to rent. And I've heard they'll have 10,000 units under yeah, construction this year. Right. Mm-hmm. That's astounding. So yeah, the next, you know, that's, in my opinion, those are horizontal apartments is what that is. Yeah. Or the clubhouse and mm-hmm. the, the family that wants a yard, but doesn't want to buy a house. Yeah. Um, so okay. great opportunity. We can, we continue to look at it. And I, I think though, I, I don't think you've seen any in Albuquerque yet. Uh, I, I know that there are, several projects uh, winding their way through the planning process right now. So I think you'll, you'll see that product in uh, Albuquerque and Santa Fe and probably in the next year. Yeah. So do you guys, I mean, obviously somewhat biased, but you, you guys continue to see actual home ownership decline in coming years, decades? Well, I mean, you know, it's, I, I think you're what you've seen with mortgage costs over mm-hmm. the last year uh is is created that 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 renter demand whether it be for single family for rent or traditional multifamily you know that it increased interest rates make housing less affordable which is a demand driver for multifamily yeah and it what's crazy is it's it's been in high demand even through low interest rates so yeah. I don't know. That's do you, interesting. Do you guys do you guys feel that the Fed is doing enough to curb inflation? And do you think that they even have the capacity to uh, through quantitative tightening to to uh, uh, impact it? Or do you think they are too far behind the eight ball on a, a, a more of a global macro scale? Any thoughts on that as we move forward in the next six months? Yeah, I think they're behind the curve. I mean, you know. I think you'll see, well, there's no question you'll see at least a 75 basis points increase in the Fed rate, maybe a hundred. Uh, yeah. I think it, I, I, you know, you look at the long rate, you look at the 10 year treasury today, it's a 285, maybe a little less than that. You know, we've got an inverted yield curve. You've seen commodity prices coming down, oil prices are starting to come down a little bit. Lumber prices are down, so I mean, I, 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 I'm optimistic that uh, you know, though we'll have a, a increase in, in, in the short rates over the next year. I think long rates are coming down, and and that that's really, you know, you look at the cost of any project. I mean, interest is just. Costs like lumber or copper, and you've seen mm-hmm. those the commodity prices come down, but your interest costs are going up a little bit. So, at the end of the day, it's you know it's the long rate, the ten year rate that is really determinant of the cost of debt, which is factors into the exit value. Yeah. What do you think about cap rates? 
then? I mean, do you think that there? Well, well, there's no direct correlation between you know the the Fed funds rate and cap rates, and and it's really more of you know a a you know I don't know if I'm a, a student of Peter Lineman, and you, you if you have followed him, I mean, it's, it's funds flow that's more important than cap rates. I mean, there, there's so much money looking for yield. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's just a matter of, you know, so if you're in a situation with negative leverage, I mean, if you, you'll, you'll have less debt used in acquisitions. But, I mean, you think about, you know, flight to capital, too. I mean, you, certainly... We have a, a inflation problem in the U.S. It's worse, worse around the world. Mm-hmm. And so, if I'm a invest, if I'm a investor in Spain or Italy, I want to get my dollars out of their, their currency into U.S. dollars and buy hard assets in the mm-hmm. U.S. So, mm-hmm. I, I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of foreign investment in the U.S. in the next few years. I agree fully. Which, 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 which will, I'm sorry, to, which, which, which is, you know, as you have demand, more demand, you know, prices go up and, yep. and cap rates go down. So I, I don't think you can make a, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a factor interest rate, you know, the Fed funds rate is a factor, but it's not directly correlated to cap rates. You know, Peter Lineman said the same thing yesterday and I, Ben, were you on the Walker Dunlap? What was yesterday? Yeah. And he, same thing about foreign investment. You're going to see a, it's already been occurring, but a, a flight for investment from foreigners into the United States, even more so due so to the inflation. So you don't see cap. So you guys aren't adjusting your exit caps for when, you know, if the, if a project's a year, year and a half out. Uh, I think we're more conservative on the cap rates. I mean, certainly we we had a a, a project here that, you know, I I think would have, uh, you know, had we got it to market two months ago, mm-hmm. it would it would uh, have traded at at least a fifty basis points lower cap rate than today. I, I I'm then so we put that disposition on hold for now mm-hmm. and you know I, I again I, I think that the the long rate is going to moderate in the future so I think I think that the pricing will improve you know after the first of the year some of it's such local issues and not to segue to a different topic but yeah. the asset that Ben's talking about uh, another I guess issue on the table with that potential buyer was crime mm. the assets here in Albuquerque. And that's the first time that's come across our plate that we all know what we're dealing with here in the city of Albuquerque, but it's been, uh, that was the first time that that became. That is interesting. That's yeah, really interesting an, on, a, an on an acquisition of that size, that that's a, yeah. a factor there. Previous buyer know them well. And for them to, bring that up as a key concern that was eye-opening hmm. so. people who were you know have been there informed educated raised and worked you, you'd think that the legislators would make a move and hopefully that they can but that's uh seems to be a re- reoccurring theme well it's interesting because albuquerque you know obviously does have that but there's a lot of metros right now you know, that are having that issue right now. So it's interesting that, you know, buyers are kind of looking at that again for that size of an acquisition. Very interesting. Well, we're, yeah, we're coming up on our timeline here. So, you know, we always like to kind of end the podcast, obviously with knowledgeable guys like you that are, that are experienced. I mean, I'd love to, to take a step back kind of into your past and ask, and I guess I'll go with, with Ben first here, but what is a piece of advice that you received, you know, back when you were starting in the career that you felt like you, you still, you know, visit quite often, that's kind of shaped who you are today. Well, no, I, I think I touched on that earlier. It's like, if you're, 
getting into the industry. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to be a sponge. I mean, you've got to, I mean, go to every nonprofit fundraiser, meet people, network, you know, talk to owners, talk to brokers, develop that Rolodex and because, and then develop trust with all those people. And, and that will, will benefit you greatly. I mean, that's what I'm telling my son who's getting into the industry. I mean, that, you know, it doesn't pay dividends, you know, the first month, but, you know, 10 years later, you know, it pays huge dividends. Yeah. Long-term plan. And it's integrity. I mean, you just, you, your reputation is everything and you, you just are honest and you do what you say you're going to do. That's my advice. Yep. Yep. Kurt, what about you? You know, I'm going to pretend like this person we're talking to is three years into the industry. And the three things I've learned over the years that people have told me, uh, you'll never have 100% of the information on a deal, right? Everybody wants to know everything before they go forward, before they build the project, before they buy the land, you'll never have 100%. Took me a while to accept that. Um, Number two, number two, know when to walk away. Sometimes we drink our own bath water, know when to walk away. And then I can't believe Ben didn't say this because we talk about it here all the time. (laughs) Our third one, you can buy more land in a day than you can sell in a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. No doubt. So definitely all uh, good pieces of of advice. Yeah. Great insight. So again, you know, you guys are, you know, a tremendous uh, value to the commercial real estate community and the projects that you're doing are extremely influential in New Mexico and Texas. So, you know, yeah, New Mexico is lucky to have you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank so, you. uh, again, greatly, greatly appreciate your time here today. Um, we'll put your, your contact. Pleasure. Yeah. We'll put your contact information in the, in the show notes, but thanks again for being here. Oh, thanks, thank you. Thanks again, thank you guys. Thank you. Hey listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. If you feel someone within your network would benefit and learn from this podcast, please feel free to share this or any other episode with them. If you feel you have benefited from this podcast, please leave us a review on any platform where you listen to podcasts. We greatly appreciate your support and feedback, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next show. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay educated.